I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. This episode of Spaces Podcast is supported by BQE, the makers of BQE Core. BQE Core is the software that makes it easy to manage your projects and people for maximum productivity and ultimate profitability. Learn more at bqe.com. What we're attracting and creating is sort of this launch pad and ecosystem for creators and founders and, and a lot of people that are, you know, working on their own startup or working for startups or, or in the gig economy or, or a lot of engineers and people coding and people working in, in tech roles that could, could be anywhere, but they want to spend, you know, the free time. They want to, you know, walk to the beach and, and hang out in Venice Beach or in Brooklyn or in places that really are just tend to be um, sometimes cost prohibitive, but but energetically, that's where people want to be. This is Spaces Podcast, where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello, my name is Demetrius, and you're listening to Spaces Podcast. Thank you for coming back, everybody. In today's episode, I have an interesting conversation for you. We're going to discuss pod hotels, also known as capsule hotels. We won't be providing background or history in this episode today. We've already done an episode on hotels. I'll add a link to that. Uh, where we gave a little bit of insight into how hotels have evolved. So you can check that out if you like. But Pod Hotels, just to give a little insight, actually originated in the city of Osaka in the Kensai region of Japan, which actually debuted in 1979. And this is at the time when in Japan, practicality and efficiency was really important. We'll get into more of the details of what a pod hotel is and what a pod specifically is, but we have a guest joining us in this episode who has created a company that's doing pod hotels here in the U.S., which is called Stay Open. Our guest is Steve Shpilski. He is the CEO and co-founder of Stay Open. I would let him share some additional details on his background and the company. But some of the points that we discussed today are digital nomad life and co-living, kind of what the differences are, target demographics or users that he finds with Stay Open. As I mentioned, we explained some of the pod characteristics, talk about security, zoning and building safety concerns, 
talk about this as a potential solution for the unhoused population. And we dig in a little bit to the business of Stay Open and plans to scale the business. So we cover a lot in this episode. Hope you can stick around for the whole thing. And with that, let's get into this conversation. Michelle, you are a world traveler, but you're not quite a digital nomad, right? I would not call myself a digital nomad. No, I'd call myself a a rather bougie traveler. (laughs) (laughs) Are you familiar with the digital nomad lifestyle? Have you run into anyone on your travels that kind of lives that way? No, not really. I mean, maybe to a certain extent in New Zealand when we were traveling north to south across both islands. But even then it was more, I think there were they were moving quicker than staying in any given place for any prolonged period of time. Yeah, I've, I've been interested in the concept. I don't know that I could quite get there yet. But with all of this remote working, it's very intriguing to me to be able to just cut loose from everything and then just go. Uh, So I've been thinking about this and this concept and really wanted to do this as an episode. So we have somebody today uh, joining us that can share some insight into this concept and what he's working on in this arena. Please help me welcome Steve Shapilsky. Steve, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for for having me, Demetrius and Michelle. It's great to be on. Uh, So I'm excited to to talk to you about uh, Stay Open, which is uh, your your hotel. But before we dig into it, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and um, maybe brief synopsis of of Stay Open. Yeah, Uh, I was born in Kiev, Ukraine, which is always interesting for people to know, given what's going on in the world. And it's 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 part of the story moved to uh, the U.S. in Los Angeles when I was very young, went to USC. I was uh, studied accounting and started my career as a forensic accountant at PricewaterhouseCoopers, worked in the Bay Area, then moved to Moscow, Russia to work there, and then moved to Ukraine to run a real estate fund, um, which was my first foray into real estate. Moved back to the U.S. to start my own real estate fund where I got into financing uh, the development of hotels, uh, mostly mezzanine debt and preferred equity investments. Uh, we were financing everything from the, the Waldorf Astoria in Beverly Hills to uh, Hyatt on the campus of the USC Medical School. So that's really what got me into uh, knowledge of hospitality. We eventually developed a, a hotel, which was a large adaptive reuse project by LAX, where we converted a 250,000 square foot office building into a 400 room Hyatt hotel that opened six months ago. All of these are little, I'm planting little seeds for, for why we created Stay Open. Eventually, uh, I became frustrated with, with how hotels were developed, how long it took, how expensive it took, and then also just the product wasn't catering to this emerging demographic of, of a digital nomad, which I'm sure we'll dive into. So um, I started uh, Stay Open and Stay Open, we create pod hotels for digital nomads and travelers in repurposed buildings. We've also dove into some interesting technology aspects and we've created a rewards program that uses blockchain instead of just your typical old Marriott or Hilton rewards program. And we've also created some nonprofit initiatives that utilize Web3 technology to engage our community to, to help give back. And, and the, the goal of our nonprofit initiatives are to help underhoused and unhoused people. I want to just pause for a second and go to definitions. Let's Can we just define for our listeners what digital nomad actually means? Because I think we all kind of like think we know what it means, but what does it mean to you, Steve? Great question. Uh, I would say it's people that would define themselves as probably living for more than a month at a time at another location or not having something that they call a permanent residence. So if you don't have a one-year lease or you don't really, or you've leased your place out and you don't have a place where you can come and stay permanently, I would say you're, you're kind of definitely like 100% digital nomad. There's definitely digital nomad light now because people have the ability to work remotely. Sometimes they could be out of the office for a week or three weeks of the month. And a lot of people are then just bouncing around and may have kind of a home base, 
but they want to live in Los Angeles and Brooklyn and Miami and in Aspen and Jackson Hole, and they want to do it for a couple of weeks or, or a month at a time. But really, it's people that can work and have workations um, fairly frequently um, and have the flexibility of, of doing such. Now, for more definitions, um, stay, uh, stay open kind of falls in a hybrid of things. So we talked about hotel, co-living is another thought and possibly something else. Can you kind of break down those components that you see uh, stay open falls under and, and what those each mean to you? Yeah. Um, so right now we, we opened our first property in Venice Beach, which is our kind of test case. We had 10, 10 pods and we'll get into what a, what a pod is, but it's in essence a, an enclosed bunk bed. So you get the privacy, but, but we still get the density of utilizing space efficiently. So, to, I mean, typically there, there's some legal definitions of what a hotel is versus what, what a residence is. So typically anything under 30 days for one stay is deemed a hotel. Anything over 30 days then bleeds into residential. That's more of like a his, historic definition and a legal definition. We actually restrict how long people could stay in our Venice Beach property because we want more people coming through and we run at 90% occupancy and it's more of a showroom than anything right now. Our property that we're doing in Santa Monica, we're converting a gym into an 80 pod hotel. There we're going to explore options of having people stay for more than 30 days in a membership scenario, you know, allowing people to ideally, as we open more stay opens, you can go and stay in a stay open in Los Angeles and in, and in Brooklyn and in Wynwood, and you have a membership and you could bounce around and it doesn't matter if you're staying for 30 days or two, two weeks. Then it's a matter of does our specific accommodation have the amenities which are conducive for a longer term stay versus a shorter term stay? Do we have private rooms? Do we have more space? Do we have less space? And some properties will and some properties may not. So we just want to provide the, that, that flexibility for people. Um, and we don't think that the affordable component really exists in the market because um, staying in a hotel for 30 days is really not sustainable for most people, even if you, you have a nice job or run a nice business. Same with an Airbnb. Airbnbs are, are no longer less expensive than, than a hotel room in, in most markets. So um, we want to find something where someone can stay for an extended period of time, yet keep it affordable and have great people in the environment as well. So that co-living element is kind of what you're talking about in, was it Santa Monica, where it's more than 30 days? We will um, potentially permit it. So Santa Monica, we're taking... Um, an old gym and we're converting it into an 80 bed property. Most of the beds are rooms of eight pods. So you share a room, but you have your own private pod. And then we have right now plans for four to six small private rooms. And obviously those private rooms are more conducive to a longer term stay than, than staying in, in a pod. And then there's a shared kitchen, there's shared co-working, there's a cafe bar area. There's kind of like, you know, what you would expect in kind of a co-working setup, but then, you know, the back of the house is where people can stay. And then there's a shared restroom, which is, you know, just, uh, people never complain about a really nice bathroom that they share. You tend to complain about a not so nice bathroom that you share, <laughs> but we all like the Equinox bathroom or a country club bathroom. In fact, as, as people kind of have the means to do so, we tend to share bathrooms more, <laughs> not less and are more comfortable to do so. So I said, why not just start out by making shared restrooms really nice versus, you know, what we're doing is like people have this perception of what a hostel is. Yeah. And that's the easiest way to describe what we are. And I use it just as like, a, okay, we're like a hostel, but we're the 2.0 version of it. Because really when people walk through the doors of a stay open, they're like, well, this is not what my impression of a hostel is. I'm not going to lose my kidney here, right? <laughs> I, I'm going <laughs> to, we don't even use that word um, in any of our kind of marketing or, or any of our copy. I obviously use it to describe like that's the closest thing to be relatable to people, but we're really taking it to a whole nother level with the, the concept that we're building and then the technology around it and how we're repurposing real estate, which is a big ESG initiative of ours as well. So, so I want to just... Because you use the term hostel, and I recognize you're not a hostel, but I do think that that's an easy way for people to understand because most people understand what a hostel is. But a hostel also typically 
draws in a certain type of, of demographic, a certain type of traveler, right? And it's usually kind of in that early 20s, mid 20s, out to see and explore an adventure, doesn't necessarily have a career yet, you know, might be between jobs type of thing, right? Like that's, I, I may be over over stereotyping, but when you think about your clientele, your demographic, does it target a certain age group? Does it target a certain kind of career path that people may be on or may not have yet started on yet? Then I guess the follow-up question of that is, you've talked about you have a location in Venice and you're looking now at a location in Santa Monica. So how important is location for your business model? Like, could you do your business model in Bellflower? Bellflower is just an infill, East Los Angeles suburb, or does it have to be in kind of these cache locations that are drawing people because there's a lot of other things that are happening that are cool and people want to be at and that sort of thing? Um, in terms of our demographic, you're right. I mean, the the historical perception of a hostel, you know, and, and if you go to New Zealand, they, they even call them backpacker accommodations. When when we hear that backpacker accommodations, that kind of just means like, I, th I think like hobo, right? Like I'm just bouncing around aimlessly from place to place to, to maybe do something cool. So interestingly, the average age of our guest in Venice Beach, and we've been open since October, we've had about 3,000 unique individuals come through the space, is 33, 34. And even split between male, female. Wow. Um, a lot older than I would have thought. Same here. Um, we've had people that have sold companies, founders. We've had people that you know, we had a guy in there, we do like a lot of stuff in health and wellness. So we do yoga and, and breath work and just some, some cool kind of things for the community and, and to expose health and wellness to like a broad range of demographics and people. But there's a gentleman that, that came to do a yoga class. Um, he was actually standing there and like, come do a yoga class. He's like, oh, I've never done one. He's about 60 years old. And then uh, his daughter was there as well. And we asked, I turned to his daughter, I assumed his daughter was staying with us. I'm like, how, how has the stay been? And she's like, oh, I'm not staying here. I'm, I'm graduating from UCLA. My dad is in town visiting me and he wanted to stay here because he didn't want to stay in some boring place. And he brought me here because he thought it was cool and wanted to show off where he's staying to me. Oh, and then funny. we get to talking to this guy and he just... He just saw the golf course in Orlando and, and he's, he's obviously a, a real estate guy and he was fascinated by what we're doing and how we're repurposing space. Um, another cool example is we had a, we had a girl um, in town from London who works for McKinsey. She spent two nights staying at the Waldorf in Beverly Hills, somehow found us and stayed three nights with us. And she's like, I have to talk to the CEO. I have to find Steve. Like, I need to know like what you're doing because this is amazing. And, and I sat down and talked to her and she said, this is incredible. This is such a very different and for me right now, a better experience than what I was getting at the Waldorf, just because of the social engagement, the location, the, the vibe that we created, the people that are coming through the space. You know, those are two just interesting examples of we, we really we were hoping to get this type of, of demographic people that are actually choosing not not have to just because of price. And we started charging $50 a night per pod when we opened. We'll, we'll push about $150 on, on per bed on the weekends now. And our average daily rate is about $90. And that's running at 90% occupancy. So we could theoretically charge more. And that's a rate to share a space with another human that you don't know. Correct. Yeah. And it's amazing that people actually want to share that space with other humans because what we're attracting and creating is sort of this launch pad and ecosystem for creators and founders and, and a lot of people that are, you know, working on their own startup or working for startups or, or in the gig economy or, or a lot of engineers and people coding and people working in, in tech roles that could, could be anywhere, but they want to spend, you know, the free time. They want to, you know, walk to the beach and, and hang out in Venice Beach or in Brooklyn or in places that really are just tend to be um, sometimes cost prohibitive, but, but energetically, that's where people want to be, which is a good segue on where do we open these locations? Um, 
I mean, our core focus is obviously places where, where there's a lot of constraints in, in real estate and prices keep growing, where the demand for an accommodation or an apartment or anything in between far outstrips the supply. We can't build fast enough to keep up with the demand of people wanting to stay in places and hence prices grow. And yep. everyone's creating new technology solutions, new distribution channels, new platforms from Airbnb to this new thing by Adam Newman, Flow. None of no no one that I've seen um, is creating new supply efficiently. They're just making they're they're tackling the demand side and trying to get either more demand um, and they're trying to make things easier for everyone. But very few people are are really creating more supply quickly, and that that's we'll get into that. That's that's one of our core focuses. But location is important, and we have to find like the why people want to be there. And obviously if you're in Venice Beach or the Bay Area or New York or Miami or Austin or Nashville, like all these, you know, there's 10 cities throughout the US where the why is pretty, you know, like we know why people want to be there. Um, and then you go to this next layer of now that people can be digital nomads, there's plenty of resort locations which have their own real estate constraints of why people want to be there. If you could, um, I, I digital nomaded this, this summer, um, in Jackson Hole for for with my family, um, I actually stayed in a hostel with my son to get like the full experience. But um, you know, places like that, there's nowhere to stay that's affordable, and there's a lot of people that would love to stay in you know, like Tahoe or Mammoth or, or Jackson Hole or Vail or you know, again, there's beach and resort communities that have now just experienced you know during and now post COVID just tremendous growth. And that's created a lot of issues for accommodations that are affordable. It's created a lot of issues for workforce housing, right? So which we cater to as well. I mean, you know, if you're a ski instructor or a waiter or waitress or working in, in Jackson Hole, I mean, people are sleeping in their cars sometimes and showering in community centers, people jobs, or they're driving an hour outside of town to get to their place of work, which which causes traffic, it causes animosity amongst people living there and, and, and the tourists that come in. So that's a whole other layer of, of locations. And then kind of the third is there's got to be a demand driver. So so Bellflower, good example. Um, and, and we do get asked this because there's a going to be a, a good amount of spaces available in these in these submarkets. And there it may be um, a little tougher, but it but it depends. It's um, you know, I'll give kind of more of an example of this. May not be fair because it's still West Los Angeles, but um, if you guys are familiar, there's a, a brand new Google campus opening in Westwood. It, it it's in a converted shopping mall that was called the West Side Pavilion. It's 500,000 square feet, and it's been completely gutted, renovated. It's going to be a, a Google campus, which are some of the few companies out there that will need kind of that creative office space. There's going to be four to five thousand employees there, and while there's not a tourist draw there it's it's a nice area of los angeles but there's really like no reason why someone would want to stay like at the corner of westwood and pico right. but if you're coming in and gigging and working for google or you're in town for a week or you're a digital nomad i want to be across the street from there i want to be as close to that as possible because i think on any given night there's going to be 50 to 100 people that are part of that now newly created ecosystem that would love to not worry about where they're going to sleep and would just like to cross the street and have a bed to stay in, have a cool place to hang out, have some other people to interact with. So, you know, if there was like something like that in a Bellflower or Inland Empire or, you know, 40 minutes outside of Austin, then that could be another demand driver. And there are a lot of those. I mean, those do exist um, throughout the world in the U.S. So I think we could have pretty broad coverage um, in location, different economics, obviously. I mean, we're not going to get $150 a night in, in a bellflower, I don't think. Does your space accommodate or make sense for couples or families? While it does skew towards obviously people that have that flexibility and freedom, which generally is more correlated with with people that don't have a, a family yet or even even a, a significant other, our concept does have like again in Santa Monica we have small private rooms which are affordable and those private rooms will have a queen bed and a bunk bed so they'll sleep up to six uh, up to four people um, so geared towards a family or a couple. Or a lot of times the, the individual that wants all of the social and vibe benefits of staying in the property, but when they put their head down, they want their own room. 
So depending on the market, we, we will always have private rooms, which, which are geared towards, you know, the couple, the, the family or, or the individual that wants to have a little more privacy. Our pods right now are designed as single use for a lot of reasons. Like it's a twin size bed and we say it's single occupancy. We don't want two people in there for a number of reasons right now. Um, we get asked, can we make a, you know, a double wide, <laughs> right? For, for couples, um, which, which there's pros and cons of that. I, I don't know yet. We may test some out, but you know, we, we've had couples stay in, in Venice beach. Again, it's small. There's 10 pods there. So, um, we've, we definitely have had couples there. In Santa Monica, it'll be a little bit easier. We're actually one of the few people out there that is friendly with the California Coastal Commission. So that's the group that governs all kind of, it's got a green light development that's basically like half a mile inland, um, anywhere along the coast of California. And they want to make sure that wh whatever is built, there's always enough affordable and accessible component. They want, they want accessibility to the beaches, both from a financial, um, and physical perspective. So anytime someone builds big fancy hotels, they make the developer build an affordable component or they charge them a tax and then they're supposed to use that tax to build um, affordable accommodations. And those accommodations need to also be geared towards families. So they're, they're, they need to be geared towards that family that'll commute in from the Inland Empire to do a beach weekend in San Diego or Santa Monica. Um, and could just get in their car drive, park somewhere and get in a room with a family and do so affordably. And some of our properties will, will have the vibe and will be more conducive to that. And some just won't be um, just because of the way that they're laid out. We in, in Venice Beach, we don't take any guests under the age of 21 because we can and because we want to make sure it's um, we just want to have a certain just atmosphere and level, you know, so that again, but that's just a small, unique property. Um, Santa Monica will, will, will be open to obviously all ages. Steve, can you talk a little bit about where the idea to uh, go with the pods? How did you come across the pods and, and how did that spur, you know, the use? Yeah. You know, I, I asked myself after I built the, or started building this hotel at LAX, like, why don't hostels exist in the U.S.? Which for all intents and purposes, they don't. And then I asked myself, why the rest of the world has them, Europe, Asia, South America, it's very common. It's not stigmatized in any way, but there's no like Marriott of hostels. I mean, there's a couple now that are emerging, but there's no like consistent brand that, that we're used to in so many segments within hospitality. And then I said, okay, what are the pain points of a hostel? Um, and one of those pain points was you don't get any privacy and, and, and the bunk beds are like, you're sleeping like in a prison cell, right? <laughs> and like the mattresses are razor thin and you have no physical barriers. You have no privacy with lighting. So we started to explore different concepts in Australia New Zealand, actually, and in Asia. And we're like, okay, there's people that are using pods. Some which, you know, looked like porta potties, like plasticky, space agey, and we didn't like those. And, and some that were very cool and designed. And we're like, okay, those are, there's a little bit more along the lines. And, and we, we designed ours uh, in house on our own and built them in Southern California with the vendor, actually, our, the company that did our, our cabinets for our hotel. We're like, oh, can you cool. kind of build a big, big cabinet with a mattress in it? And, and we did lighting and we did, some like sound insulation and ventilation and a bunch of charging ports. We tested them. So we said, you know, a pod is finds this great middle ground where we can have a room with eight people. But when you close up your pod, you may, you don't know if there's one other person or if there's seven other people in there, when someone comes in and flips on the lights to the room, it's not going to bother you because your lights insulated. You can flip on a light, you can charge your devices. You know, it doesn't take up that much more real estate, but we, but like the bang for the buck in terms of user experience made a whole lot of sense. How big is a pod like dimension wise? So think of a, it's like a twin size bed and then about enough so you can sit up into it. So it's about seven feet wide and, and four feet tall. And okay. So you're not standing in your pod. You're not getting dressed in your pod. You're not getting dressed in your pod. That's where the, the common area bathrooms, again, more like an Equinox where you have like your, your shower, your changing area. I mean, people do get dressed in their pod. So <laughs> sure. people do like, but, but like, it's not like intended for you to stand up and like move around. It's, it's kind of like a bunk bed, one person per pod. A pod is a bed. Okay. Okay. It's almost like uh, in a train car. At least I always think about this yeah, yeah, yeah. episode of uh, Lucy where they show the, a train car <laughs> and you see the various little 
bunk bed with curtains. It almost looks like that, but it's much more finished with a framework around each little bed area. So do those pods also lock? So when you go away during the day, you can leave your luggage or your personal belongings in the pod? Because that's the other, when I stayed in hostels in my early 20s throughout Europe, that was the thing that was always really tough, right? Like you kind of felt like in some places you had to sleep with your backpack on you because you just (laughs) didn't know like who else was in the room with you, you know? And you're always trying to like hide your passport in the most obscure place because lord knows like someone's going to come and steal your passport right like there was no place to secure your belongings that was always the struggle i had with hostels yeah so right now we we have a few different lockable storage solutions we've got um each guest gets a locker that's big enough for a carry-on bag or whatever items that that's lockable we've got smaller um kind of shelf locks, which are more like the size of a safe, like in a hotel room, or if you want to put in a passport or some other valuables in there. Right now, our pods are not lockable, but they can be. And and, um, the reason is we want to make sure that people can safely get out if the case there's emergency. So we we would need like like kind of like the trunk of a car, like kind of like a latch where if you lock your pod, we want to make sure for fire life and safety that people don't get stuck. And as soon as we can kind of figure out that, um, we do get requests like to lock the to lock your pod. Not so much for when people are asleep, but I think Michelle, to your point, people just want to kind of throw their backpack or their stuff in a pod, like shut it, lock it, and leave. It's just like a very easy flow as opposed to like even going to the locker in the room. But right now we have lockers in our current property. Um, knock on what I for to my knowledge, we haven't had any bad actors or do anything bad. I mean, it's obviously going to happen. It's, you know, there's going to be enough people through the space, but, you know, generally we want to attract like kind of the right open-minded people that are respectful of each other. And really, again, we're, we're attracting like compared to other hostels in Venice beach, we're at a 30, 40, 50% premium. So we're still affordable. But we're at such a premium, we tend to like attract like the the kind of the cream off of like the segment um, or even bring in people that wouldn't even consider the segment into the space because of previous perceptions. And now like, wait a second, like they've alleviated my concerns. And then like that all trickles down to like a safer offering for everyone. Let's take a break to share a little bit more about our sponsors. Systems and standard operating procedures. You already know that's how to build a profitable business and find the freedom you want, but you struggle with choosing which systems you need most and how to implement those systems quickly so that you can get back to doing what you love most. This series will help. The Designing Your Business Masterclass series created by acclaimed architect and business consultant Douglas Teeger, FAIA, aims to help fellow architects and engineers run their firms more profitably while maintaining a healthy work-life balance. Douglas grew his practice from a solo practitioner to a 30 plus person firm, then later sold his firm to do what he does today, help architects be more successful through Tiger Consulting. On the third Wednesday of every month, Douglas dives deep into an essential topic that will strengthen the profitability of your firm and make it sustainable for growth for years to come. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass with Douglas Teeger at bqe.com masterclass and start implementing powerful systems for the profitability you need and the freedom you want. Every live masterclass session includes AIA continuing education credit and when you visit bqe.com masterclass, you'll have access to the full library of past sessions on demand. The Designing Your Business Masterclass is free and it's brought to you by our friends at BQE, the makers of BQE Core. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass at bqe.com masterclass. That's bqe.com masterclass. Hey, Demetrius here. As you may know, Spaces is part of Gable Media, the next evolution of interactive media and resources for the AEC community and beyond. Gable empowers AE professionals just like you to better serve the world. Now, through the strategic development of a brand new membership platform, we are eliminating the traditional industry boundaries and information bottlenecks that we all experience. But we need your help. 
please go to gablemedia.com members and pick your top three initiatives that you believe will have the greatest impact on your growth, including a continuing education program, VIP access to expert forums and private Q&As, community boards, special freebies, and more. Go to gablemedia.com members and let us know what you'd like to see. Small firm entrepreneur architects, get ready to build a better business with the Entree Architect podcast, where business meets architecture. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, the host of Entree Architect podcast. Join me every week for inspiring interviews with passionate people that share proven strategies to help you build a better business. If you think there is a problem, one, you can't make a move until you have a plan in place. The accountability chart really helps plan, okay, for the business six to 12 months out, this is what we need. We cover it all from financial management to marketing, sales, productivity, and beyond. There's two sides of it, right? So there's the one when you don't have any work. So you're like, well, I'm either going to charge enough to be profitable or I'm going to go out of business. Or you have so much work and you have backlog and you don't need any more work. So you charge way more. I'd also say lagging measures, one of the best, like the best, best, best. (laughs) So for any client, for any professional service um, company, if you're going to take one thing away from what we're talking about today, is to look at a number called the labor efficiency ratio. Entree Architect is not just a podcast. It's your secret weapon for success. With over 500 episodes, it's one of the longest running architecture podcasts in the world. You're sure to find the information you need to elevate your business. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now and join the community of small firm entrepreneur architects building better businesses. And now let's get back to the conversation. What was the building before you turned it into uh, Stay Open? It was an office. It used to be one of the former Snapchat offices. So you not only had to convert it into uh, a form of residential assembly location, but you're also introducing these pods, which increases the amount of people that are going to be in this space. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that process and all the things that you had to, all the things you had to take into account in that process? Well, in zoning wise, is it hospitality or is it residential? So in in Venice Beach, it's actually a very unique zoning. It's like an artist in residency, so they're like live work lofts kind of type anyway. So it's this unique zoning, which is definitely gray for Venice Beach. Um, we didn't have to go through anything to get our 10, 10 pods in there because it's already zoned for for accommodations and living. In fact, when Snapchat was in there and had 40 employees in there every day with no one spending the night, they were technically in violation of the use type. Um, sometimes you would even see like startups in Venice Beach put a mattress or like a futon in a part of the room just in case someone were to check there. So, yeah, yeah, someone sleeps here. And then there'd be 40 people working in the space. So we're actually on a day-to-day basis, a lot less dense than, than what commercially people were trying to push for. That's Venice Beach. Um, you know, Santa Monica did something incredible. And this is why we're focused on this part of, of Santa Monica. They said on Third Street Promenade, which for those listening not familiar, it's kind of like downtown core Santa Monica. It's a walkable street. You know, 20 years ago, it was one of like the primest retail locations in in Southern California. And then the past 10 years, it kind of losing its its draw and a lot of retail stores started to close. I think obviously brick and mortar retail affected closures of stores. Um, the food and beverage died and everything kind of died after that. And then all the office space was kind of class B and C office stock above the retail. And that kind of started to die even before COVID. So it really became like this empty, emptier place. And then COVID just really just, they were down and they just like, it just really squished it. So like you had really, really high vacancy rates on the retail and office stuff. And Santa Monica, you know, a lot of times it's it's hard to, as, as people, for those that develop or own there, um, it can be challenging developing there, obviously very lucrative when you get it done. But interestingly, what they did was they said, 
look, we want to bring life back into Third Street Promenade. We want to also address our number one concern, which is affordability of accommodations and places to live. So they said, we're going to pass an ordinance on Third Street Promenade specifically, which allows for a buy right change of use going from office or retail to hospitality or residential. So they basically said, as long as you conform to code, it is no different than remodeling, you know, you coming in and doing TIs to an office or, or retail location. And they, they took a process that may take up to a year sometimes, because sometimes there's public hearings, sometimes there's just no rules for change of use. And they said, we're going to eliminate that. They also don't have a parking requirement in downtown Santa Monica, which makes things very easy as well. And they said, if someone crazy enough is going to come in and take over office or retail spaces and turn them into hotels or apartments, God bless you, go and do it because we want you to do it because it's sustainable. It's a way to get more supply, which is going to help with affordability. And it's a way to get more TOT tax if, if it's a hospitality product. And it's going to rejuvenate that whole corridor of Third Street Promenade. It's like a win-win-win for, for everyone. And I think that using that as an example is going to open the door to a lot. Like I, I had the, with the gentleman running for CD11, which is the council district in um, Venice Beach over at, Venice, over at property yesterday. I told him about what Santa Monica did. And he's like, that's awesome. That'll be so cool to point to because then we could go into LA, which is like a much bigger animal in terms of just bureaucracy. But it's so much easier to just point to say, well, this is how someone else did it. And then it's a lot more easier to implement in these larger municipalities because they're not going to be the first people to do it. But Santa Monica, so we got really excited. That's why we jumped on like very aggressive. Let's get a spot in there because we want to use that as a showcase. And then other cities like Denver and Austin and Nashville, they will follow suit. They'll act, it'll actually be easier to get things done there because things are just easier in those places anyway. So in Santa Monica, it sounds like you will not have dedicated or specific parking for uh, stay open. In Venice, if that was a former Snapchat office building, I'm assuming that there was probably an ample dedicated parking. No. Is parking a component of your project? For, for a lot of reasons, um, we want to promote and incentivize public transportation, shared ride usage, scooters, bikes. Um, again, that's our demographic, like your typical digital nomad or traveler from Germany isn't like renting a, a Chevy Malibu at the airport you know, for more than what they're paying there for their accommodation, driving and then paying $50 a night to park in Venice Beach. There's just more efficient and sustainable solutions for people out there. Um, in Venice, we have had a few people say, I'm actually in a van, right? Like living van life. And I, you know, where can I park my van? And it's like, you can park it anywhere, but there's nowhere officially to park it. Yeah. Right? Like there's yeah. people living, unfortunately, in their vans, not like really, I guess, kind of by choice, but not like the same reason as why someone's staying with us. So um, th there's ample public parking. So we have like arrangements with a couple public lots that, that are adjacent to us. Um, so we have guests and we have like agreed upon overnight rate, but gosh, I think less than 20% of our guests have a car to park. Um, so it's been less of a problem. Santa Monica is actually overparked. So they, they built all these public parking structures like in the nineties for the promenade. And now that's why the city passed an ordinance in downtown. Like if you build even a new apartment or a new office building, you don't need to account for parking in the downtown corridor there because the public parking is more than sufficient to accommodate commercial use. For stay open, how many square feet is too small and how much is too big for your model? The, the sweet spot is 10,000 to 30,000 square feet. Yeah, it's not big at all. So, but in a 30,000 square feet, we can get up to 250 beds. The, it could skew smaller. So like in a very high dense area like Venice Beach, where I don't need to build as much of a food and beverage amenity or a coffee shop amenity, because that's why people are staying in Venice Beach. They want to be close to like an Abbott Kinney because of all those great things. And, you know, chances are I'm not going to build a better coffee shop than the one that's on Abbott Kinney. Right. Yep. Yep. But I can make up for that in rate. So that's why we can charge significantly more per pod because uh, I'm not going to get that F&B revenue, but my pod rate is still going to be a fraction of what they would pay to be in that geographic location. When that's the case, I, I could have less space because I don't need to account for that space. I need to have enough co-working space, 
bathroom and pods so we can skew closer to you know five six thousand square feet if needed and then we're looking to see how big we can go like what what makes sense because that is a question if we're you know one of our thesis is to um, acquire office buildings and convert them into hotels and apartments so if it's over 30,000 square feet, which a lot of commercial buildings are, then we were looking at ways to segment the building where we have distinct co-living space where it's more geared towards longer term stays where they're, you know, it's more like a dorm type living where maybe you get your own room and then you have a shared living and kitchen space where there's, you know, you're sharing a pod room with, with less people and, and it's more conducive to a longer term stay um, if the floor plate again, is conducive and it underwrites and makes sense. And then we have floors that are more shorter term stay. They're, they're more pod heavy. They have a slightly different energy. They're geared towards a guest that's staying for under 30 days. And then we could slice up a building and amenitize it. Um, kind of like creating like a thing that sometimes like creating like cruise ships, like <laughs> yeah. buildings like cruise ships, like where you just have different things in it. But 30,000 is kind of where for now we've been comfortable, like looking at spaces as like, the high end, um, and then we'll go from there. Hopefully, we we can do larger, but but ten to twenty, uh, ten to thirty thousand is the range. That anything less than ten thousand square feet, unless it's like in a Venice Beach, tends to, from an operations perspective, make less sense. You you know you just have certain fixed costs that that you can't amortize. But a hundred eighty to hundred beds, which is where, where we get in ten thousand square feet, is really where where our operating margins start to look really really nice. That's amazing. When I hear 10,000 square feet and 80 to 100 beds, I can't help but think about the homelessness population that we have and the problem that we have really throughout California and obviously in other places in the United States and abroad. But what a solution that could be, right? Like if you're getting that many beds in such a small amount of space, you know what, what your costs are to create a really cool stay open concept, right? Which if you're building affordable housing doesn't need to be on the same spec level as a really cool hip hotel. We need to think, I think, as a society more about, well, how do we how do we find more 10,000 square foot spaces that we can put pods in, brand those pods, and let's start helping, you know, the population that desperately needs affordable housing. You're so right. And that's why we want to bring in anyone that's willing to listen in any city municipality, because we're already doing it. We're getting creative with design, with our pods, with layouts, with how people cohabitate in spaces. So I've thought the exact same thing. I said, let's, I would love to sit down with cities and we have, and we're starting to and say, look, you know, maybe Bellflower isn't the ideal location for a stay open commercial property, but maybe there are locations of city or county owned buildings that are still in good places to live or where people are. And maybe we could kind of, you know, copy paste like a light, like a lighter version of what we're doing into buildings without having to tear down or build new, without having to incur a huge carbon footprint of demoing and building something new. We could recycle real estate and we can get beds for people that need them. The other part of the, you know, the, the underhouse situation is, you know, what are the different social services and elements for the for, for people that need it? And, and I think that's actually, unfortunately, just as big of a problem that people are, don't like talking as much about um, because there are there are just so many use cases of why someone is underhoused or unhoused from like right. someone that's just sleeping in their car because they can't afford it, but they have a job to people that have severe substance abuse or mental health issues or a combination of both. And, you know, there's some people you can't put in shared environments um, and there's some people that you can. So I think like it's and that's it's a really passionate topic of ours at Stay Open and of mine, like figuring this out because you know, like the solution of building affordable housing for under house people at $500,000 an average cost per unit, which is what it is in Los Angeles. is like, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Like, like zero. So like that's not working. And then obviously the problem keeps growing and, um, we're really like, we really want to help. And we, we've got our nonprofit initiatives. Like we, we set aside a portion of all profit, uh, of, of gross revenue and, and donate it to a nonprofit in, in Santa Monica specifically that addresses under and unhoused people. And we're creating our own nonprofit initiative to raise proceeds to, to either, 
you know, kind of like a VC fund approach of nonprofits where we're going to fund a bunch of nonprofits. Or if we see so we see problems that can't be that aren't being solved for by existing organizations, um, that's when we'll say, OK, let's let's see if our community, whether it's our guests or people that are in our ecosystem, our investors want to sit down and actually help because what you said is exactly what I think, like we're primed to make change and make it efficient and cost effective. Um, so I'm really excited about, you know, again, like it's sad when you have kids, like I take my kids to Venice beach all the time. And you're like, you know, you have to explain like the like kids ask like the most like raw questions, like why, why is this happening? Right. And it's like, you're like oh, how do I answer this? It's like, you know, so I hope we can help be just part of the, the solution. It's a very big, problem but hopefully we can we can definitely at least be a piece of it so you know as we're talking about this and and talking about the amount of people in small space my mind keeps going to life safety are are there any unique considerations did you guys have to deal with the fire department to really like convince them that it was safe for people to to stay in these pods and because i'm thinking like on the fourth floor or i think third floor or roof deck area I think it was the third floor, um, your distance from the ground starts to get pretty far. Those types of things, did you guys have to have negotiations and prove the life safety elements of this space? So again, this is something interesting. It's so different city to city. And even within the city, there aren't, there isn't specific code for what a pod is. Um, we've always taken the position that it's furniture because it's, it's a fixture. You can move it, you can have it, you cannot have it. It's not a permanent thing. So which, which is furniture. So right now in Venice beach, we have each pod has a smoke detector in it. So we have at least that, um, our pod designs are designed to have, um, sprinkler systems within each individual pod. So if that in Santa Monica, we haven't cross that hurdle yet with with the fire department there we did have a preliminary meeting and they did not bring up the necessity to have that yet but you know we're going to find the balance of obviously we want to make sure people are safe so um we want to make sure that and if that if it is necessary to to have a sprinkler within each individual pod which which then would define a pod as basically a room which, which it kind of isn't either, but that's like, you know, you, if when you're, so is it enough to have a sprinkler within just the room that has an, an average of eight pods? Um, then the question is, how do you get, you know, water for containment within a pod if that's where something happens? Um, so we're, it's something that we're open to, to talk to cities and, and from, you know, we've done a lot of research across the world of how different people handle it. And, it's inconsistent. It, you know, you'll go in a country and one country will say, or one city will say each pod needs a sprinkler. Another city will say a smoke detector is sufficient. Someone will say smoke detector and a fire extinguisher. You know, so we're, we're, we're going to have that dialogue. It's, it's, it's very important. Like the height of it is less of a concern because you know, we're no higher than a bunk bed. So like, you know, we're not going to stack like four pods. It's always going to just be kind of one on top of the other and, and no higher. Um, you know, there's, there's ADA questions, right? Like, so we need to make sure that, that there's just accessibility, the bathrooms being common shared bathrooms, there's, there's ADA accessible restrooms. Um, all of our properties, um, will have private rooms. So obviously those, you know, those private rooms will be ADA compliant because the pods may or may not be, again, it's really no different than getting in and out of a bed, like not the second level, but like the ground level pod is just getting into a bed. So, but you don't have as big of an opening as a bed. So we'll have to work with cities to say, okay, are our bottom, bottom bunks, all ADA compliant, or if not, then our private rooms will, will be ADA accessible so that if, if someone needs that, then they automatically get the ADA room, even at the cost of a pod. How do you scale this business? And, and I think the, the, the question that ties into that for me is, I've never really heard of another pod hotel. I mean, are you one of a kind, at least in America? I mean, I'm sure it exists in Asia because they always do interesting things. But in America, the pod hotel concept, are you kind of one and one and the only? There, there are a few out there, highly fragmented. Some are super nice and some are like pods thrown in a building. Okay. So kind of to my case in point where it's inconsistent and there's no like Marriott of pod hotels. And I said, why should it, we're, we're going to be that. I mean, we're, we're way cooler than Marriott. So 
that's going to happen. The, the closest thing, there, there's a brand out there called Selena, which is really like a digital nomad type hostel offering that has a lot of co-working. They started out as geared towards a surf crowd in South America and like Costa Rica and South America where surf in the morning, co-work during the day and then party at night. And yeah. then the bed is really affordable. So like really interesting properties, very bohemian. They grew very quickly. Um, they had a common, they, they were an operator. They partnered up with real estate funds, um, went public through a SPAC um, about a year ago. I haven't checked to see how they're doing. Have had, uh, haven't expanded as quickly as they would like to in the US because it wasn't as easy for them to buy rundown motels in the US as it was in like South America. Like the numbers just, so they have, a, they have two properties open in Miami right now and they're planning to expand, um, which is great. I think, you know, they're, they're helping prove the demand they have there. Um, I mean, thousands of beds across the world. So they've expanded in, uh, in other parts. We are set up, stay open is set up very similar to like a Hilton or a Hyatt as like a brand management company where the technology, the distribution, the brand, the brand standards, we will run the development for ownership. Um, so it's really set up to be asset light or asset zero. We leased our first space in, in Venice Beach. We will lease the space in Santa Monica. We do not want to continue leasing spaces. Our, our, we have kind of two goals. One is to cater to existing real estate owners that have empty space and they're stuck. They don't know what to do with it. There is no tenant. I mean, no one is leasing your class B or C office space. And unless you put in, you know, a lot of money to get it to a class A building, then maybe if you're lucky, you're going to find like the Google of the world to fall into your lap. And those are like far and few in between. And like those people are moving into like specific buildings, which again, the cost of those are usually unattainable for most ownership groups. So we want to cater as an operator to those people that are sitting on empty space that have no tenant. And we will show you not only will bring you cash flow as an operator for a management fee, we don't want to take long term lease risk. Um, we will actually make you more money than you would have made on your triple net lease pre COVID rates. Yeah. But forget that, like, we'll just make you money because you're you're making zero now. And I think we're going to see a lot of distress in the office and, and certain retail space over the next three to five years as, you know, people and companies realize that, you know, while I need an office, I, I don't need nearly as much as I needed five years ago. And it's happening every day. I mean, yesterday Lyft just announced that they're subleasing half of their 600,000 square feet in San Francisco. What's going to happen when that 600,000 square feet comes up for renewal in the next three to five years? They're not going to renew 600,000 square feet. They're probably going to renew 3,000 square feet, probably right. less. Right. Right. So there's going to be so much of this supply, which is like the other part of the model, which is actually now even more compelling to us because we've traditionally been looking to raise money from venture capital firms, kind of the people that we're funding, like an industrious or a WeWork or like these growth, uh, Selena, like a lot of these brand operators, while we're not like super tech heavy, I mean, we have like interesting you know, our rewards program is on Web3. We have like some, some interesting technology features. We're an innovative real estate operator. We are innovation, but it's not like we're this pure SaaS platform that is just like, you know, we've got a SaaS offering and we can scale to like millions of people overnight. Where we can do is we can quickly scale in real estate because real estate's very hard to scale fast. But if there's a lot of empty space and the regulatory environment changes where cities allow that space to be repurposed efficiently, and I could look at any building and say, in a matter of three months, we can go from, from office to hotel and then like a quicker build out than, you know, building a ground up hotel takes years, building what we do takes months. Right. So we've started to talk to a lot of real estate funds that like the thesis of, okay, let's, let's go hunting for these these underutilized assets. Let's see if we could buy them at or below replacement cost. We're telling people it's about $100 to $150 a foot in terms of the TIs, like all in to take it from like empty office and stay openize it. In a period of five to seven years, um, based on the cash flow that we generate, we're gonna give you a two X return on that cost per square foot basis. We'll take you from like a basis of 500 a square foot to a thousand a square foot based on the NOI generated like at a, eight cap exit, which is about a 30% IRR. 
So we've had some really strong interest from real estate funds. You know, these are more like in the adaptive use space. These are people that are like, yeah, I can't just buy multifamily like at two, 3% cap rates. Like, you know, we've got to push the envelope and, but still have the safety of a real estate play. So, so that interest though is that gets you into the ownership, but you need to do that with a venture capitalist. As of right now, you're just establishing the brand and the concept and what you are and who you are so that you can eventually source that venture capital, right? Like the venture capital needs to physically see how has this been successful and why is this desirable? So the first two examples, though, you are just leasing those spaces. And for it to make sense for you, does that need to be a 10-year lease, a 15-year lease, a five-year lease? Like how does that? Yeah, we strive for a 10-year lease. Um, it's it's kind of a, a renter's market. So we're getting some pretty favorable um, TI allowances from, from landlords. Absolutely. So no, there's no shortage of, of acquisition opportunities for what you want to do. I mean, I'm, I'm in acquisitions myself and I just think like you have talked about office, but the other asset class that is just totally vacant is retail big box retail, um, the third street promenade retail that you talked about. I mean, the retail is struggling everywhere. And we've talked to like the Mace Riches of the world and, and the, the Westfields. And we said, look, this is act, an actual amenity to the retail experience. And, and again, Santa Monica, that mall owned by Mace Street, Santa Monica place, like Bloomingdale's just left 150,000 square feet. It opened just, you know, less than 10 years ago. It's a brand new high-end retail spot it closed the movie theater there just closed that they got lucky riot games came in and took over not a retail spot their food court is closed so we've been I've been trying to tell them i said look you don't think having a hundred bed hospitality amenity here is actually going to drive business to the gym you have there to the museum that you open to the food court that you're going to open given that you're three blocks from the beach and they're like we think so but we want to lease it to you and we're saying, look, we, we don't want to keep taking, you know, we're not, we don't want to take lease risks. Like we don't feel like we have to, like, I would get it if you, they had three options, five options of like people banging down their door, but we're looking at like second, third floor retail that no one's looking at. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. And, and I think like there's going to be an inflection point where owners are going to say, wait a second, like we have to figure something out because the intended use type of what we built is just no longer there and we're in a good location we have a generally like a good asset but like what does that mean if no one's paying you money to use it mm -hmm. yeah. so you know my focus and my partner's focus has been even less on the venture capital race side because venture capital does not like buying real estate they think that's a very poor use of capital to scale um, they don't like having debt on your balance sheet. So we've found more success from like private equity funds overseas and in the US that want to invest and stay open as an operator and a real estate platform. So kind of going back to like the old school model of how Hilton and Marriott started. Hilton and Marriott started by building and owning their own hotels, getting really good at managing and operating them. And then the capital market said, wait a second, real estate is value different than an operating business. So they all spun off the assets into individual REITs or sold them. And then the public companies are either real estate REITs or the operating company of, of Hilton, Marriott, Starwood, or some of the same um, with these management agreements with, with no with very, very asset light, um, very debt light. Um, very strong multiples, more like a tech company than a real estate company. And for now, though, I don't care. We're not public. We, we just want, we need the space somehow. And, and we're seeing the markets tell us, let's actually buy the space. If you're going to create so much value for these properties, then let's create it in-house. Don't, don't just give it away to a third party owner. You're going to create the value as the operator. We should all be part of that value because they want to incentivize us and our team for that value creation. And then people will approach us to manage and operate properties that we don't own and we won't say no. The infrastructure set up, again, similar to any franchise model. Um, we'll give you the blueprint. We'll manage it for you. We'll put you in our network. Like We will, we will definitely do that, but we're, we're now very excited about being on the ownership side and working directly in a GPLP structure with existing real estate funds because I think there's going to be a really interesting opportunity in the next five years and it's a win-win looking at all this empty space and the biggest problem is a bed for people whether it's for one night or for one year it just is like am I the only one seeing this yeah <laughs> right wow this is a such an amazing concept um, for those that are interested in following along Steve what's the best way for them to do so 
Yeah. Um, so stayopen.com is, is our, our general website. If you're interested in our nonprofit initiatives, um, we have a concept called StayDAO, S-T-A-Y-D-A-O dot I-O. That's where we've created this nonprofit. Stay Open Hotels is our Instagram handle. It's really cool. We have over 5,000 followers for, for a 10-bed property. <laughs> so we just have a lot of interest in what, what we're doing. And then if you're on Twitter, we have a lot of um, engagement on Twitter related to our rewards program. And that's called Stay Pass NFT. Um, so that's kind of where our Web3 community talks about the rewards program that we're creating. So we do a lot of Twitter spaces, um, anything from the stuff we just talked about to how can people help under and unhouse people to how do we define being a digital nomad? We've had all these awesome kind of Twitter spaces and that's state pass NFT is the, the Twitter handle there. So yeah. And I'm on, um, Twitter a lot, um, at Shvilsky, S H P I L S K Y. It's a good way to, to, to get a hold of me or, or anyone on our team. Great. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you again, Michelle, for joining me. Yeah, Thank of you course. To- right on Steve. Thank you. Fight on. Yeah. <laughs> Always good to see another a fellow Trojan. Thank you to the listeners for listening. We'll talk again on the next one. Thanks. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out our sponsors. By checking them out and supporting them, you help us keep this show going. Thank you to BQE, the makers of BQE Core, for their support of this podcast episode. Visit bqe.com slash masterclass to register for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass. Thanks again for listening. Spaces is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. If you enjoy our show, you can support us in three simple ways for free. You can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcast app if it allows you to. Tell a friend and follow us on social media. Thanks for spending time with us. Talk soon. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.